What I want to do right now is I want to pray, and then we're just jump right into a teaching. If you guys have a Bible, you can open up to the book of John, chapter 20, is what we're going to be looking at. We have some ushers that are going to get you some Bibles. If you need one, feel free to raise your hand, and they will get that to you right now. And then I'm going to pray, and then we will get to work. So, Jesus, right now, we just commit this time in your hands, and we thank you, Lord, for your presence that's here in this place. That you love us, that you're alive, that you're good, that you intend good for us. And so, Lord, no matter what types of circumstances we've found ourselves going through, God, thank you that you have brought us here in this place to learn, to grow, to be transformed. And so uh, we devote this time in your hands and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing that's kind of cool and I always love about Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, as we typically call it, is that really throughout the world... um, there's a lot of things that Christians, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, is that a lot of times Christians don't agree with, on, with everyone on everything. Like, I don't know if you noticed that or not, or if you've seen that usually Christians don't always get along um, on a lot, number of different issues, whether it be political or whatever, but you get the idea. But the fact of the matter is that one thing that Christians, I don't care what flavor, what spice, what color, where, wherever you come from, there's one thing that Christians all unanimously agree on and say that this is it. This is the center. This is the base note that everything else is literally built upon is this story of Jesus' resurrection. Everything. This is the most important. This is the Super Bowl Sunday of church. Like, this is it. You guys are here. I'm glad you're here. And you all look really good. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is so essential to everything that the gospel is all about. That millions of people around the world, they gather and celebrate today, not because of a cute bunny or colored eggs or a convenient excuse for a dude to wear pastels, but the fact of the matter is, it has to do with the fact that we celebrate Jesus rose again from the dead. That's, that's what today's all about. The Bible actually opens with the story of Adam and Eve. Some of you guys are probably familiar with it. And really, at the very beginning, we see them kind of in this state of being whole, at peace, in relational harmony, in fellowship, in relationship with God. Uh, in a lot of ways, this is kind of viewed as like an archetype of how uh, humanity and how the cosmos, the order, the earth, human beings are supposed to go and treat each other. And this relationship of connectedness to God, this relationship of connectedness to each other, all of this is supposed to go forward in a way that brings forth health and wholeness and goodness throughout planet Earth. It's one of the reasons why God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God's whole aim from the very beginning was so that as human beings partnered with God who loves them, who intends their good, this earth would be filled, flooded with goodness. But we know the story, and we realize that that's not exactly what happened. That human relationship basically broke off connectedness with God. And the whole entire project basically got derailed by way of what we would describe as human rebellion. Turning from God, or some would describe it as cosmic treason. Human beings said, we do not want God to be central. We are not interested in his wisdom to guide or to be the guiding principle for our lives. We will make our own decisions. We will begin to delve into our authentic self and decide for ourselves how life works best. And we know where that story led us. It literally led us to where we're at today. Brokenness, death, destruction, hurt, pain, despair, disdain, all of these types of experiences that you and I feel, this is part of the world in which we find ourselves in the middle of today. Uh, In other words, to put it this way, human beings, from that moment, they became exiled from this garden in Genesis chapter 1. And friendship with God, in meaningful relationships, inner peace, all of this was replaced with distance from God, distrust, hatred, paranoia, violence towards others, 
and anxiety and insecurity, self-loathing, despair, and ultimately death would reign over all. So if you would take death and embody it, and it would be a character in a story, death would be this, this, this image of darkness that rules and reigns over all. It's kind of this image that right now that we have seen throughout the world. But Jesus had a plan. God's aim from the very beginning. He from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, if you're familiar with that, God makes this promise. I'm going to enter in and do something about the darkness and the death and the despair. And I will take it on completely and overturn it in a cosmic judo match and then ultimately come out on the other end and bring forth victory. And this is what we see God stepping into doing. This is one of the reasons why we celebrate this. So this day, today, we celebrate not just a historical event from a distant part of the world, but we hold on to a bold reinstatement of God's promise to undo the curse of sin, to conquer death, and ultimately to create a brand new humanity from within the ground of another garden. This is where it gets really good. And with that being said, I want to jump right back into the story of John chapter 20. But with that, before we even jump into that, I want to just simply declare over this entire storyline, the Eden project that began in Genesis 1 is back on back on. That's exactly how the first people who encountered this resurrection of Jesus would have thought this. God is on the move doing something brand new. So with that being said, I want to jump in, take a look at and read the story, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to uh, really follow the story from the life of John, and he's going to tell us a little bit about a character by the name of Mary, and Mary Magdalene, um, and some of the parts that describe him and his friend Peter. I'm going to omit, you can read that on your own. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 2, and then we'll skip on down to verses 11 through 16. So with that being said, it starts off like this. John chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then from here, uh, kind of a little bit of an interval where she then returned to the room where she came from, where Peter and John and the rest of the disciples were at. They were obviously afraid. They were scared because their master had just been brutally murdered. And so therefore, they are the followers of Jesus. So no doubt they're wondering, are we, are we next? Are we next on this list of uh, destruction? And it goes on to say that Peter and John end up going to the tomb. They go in, they inspect, they realize they couldn't find anything either. Then they return back. And then Mary then returns back to the tomb by herself. And this is where we pick it up, verse 11. Then Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped inside to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laying. One at the head and one at the feet. And then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15 goes on to say, Then Jesus then said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. In verse 16, then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And this is the word of the Lord. And as we enter into this story, I want to look at really three things that kind of capture my attention, I think, that define or describe 
what happens as a result of this event that takes place of what we describe as the resurrection. Uh, number one, I want to just jump in and take a look at it. We, first of all, notice that light comes after darkness. This is kind of the big E on the eye chart, pretty obvious. Verse one tells us that the whole storyline in this particular uh, episode describes on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb early while it was still dark. So we get the idea that it's literally dark and then we'll move towards the light of day. But what's interesting is that throughout the New Testament, is really throughout the entire Bible, is this language, this motif of light and darkness play uh, into just human nature as well. And obviously you get the, the parallels between light and darkness in terms of morality and what oftentimes can affect or infect our souls. And uh, so the book of John chapter 1 verse 5 says this, light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later on, Peter, who's also part of the story, and uh, we, we omitted him, but he was there. He saw this whole event take place. He would later write to a group of uh, followers of Jesus, and he would say this, God called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And this famous quote, we all, we're all familiar with this idea, but the fact of the matter is, is that what, what he recognized, again, many people tend to omit this part of MLK's life in today's world because they borrow convenient statements of him that kind of fit their narrative, but they omit the fact that he was, he was deeply committed to the way of Jesus. And so he recognized that Jesus was, was the source of this. This was not, he was not hopeful in the sense of like inner light, whatever your inner light is, tap into that and you'll be all good. He realized actually humanity has a lot of darkness inside of them. It's not just darkness out there. It's not just darkness in another people group. It's darkness that's deep inside of us. And if you're really truly honest with yourself, like you've wrestled with that darkness. You know where that darkness has taken you. But the fact of the matter is that MLK recognized that, that light needs to come from an alternative source, from outside. And he obviously was acknowledging the fact that the light of God comes, descends, comes into, and does its work in the world in which we find ourselves. Um, can I pause real quick? Can we lower the volume over there? I can hear it, and it's just really weird, like I'm catching an echo. Did you guys hear that? Oh my gosh, I'm literally losing my brain. <laughs> I'm doing the best that I can, but I can't do it anymore. <laughs> Sorry. Again, little, little, little tweaks that we're working on. So um, I thought I was, like, losing my brain at first. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think so. Maybe I am. I don't know. Anyways, they're, they're working on it. Sorry. Back on track. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that those places, and here's what I want you to hear, is that those places of darkness, fear, brokenness, shame, confusion, that you might find yourself in the midst of right now, those are precisely where God does his most glorious work. That's, that's what we learn from the story. It's in the place of darkness. It's in those moments where it's unexpected. That, that God just kind of enters into those spaces and says, I'm going to do something about it. And that's where God does his most beautiful work. The second thing we notice in the story is hope after despair. So first of all, light after darkness, now hope after despair. I want you to just pause real quick and think about the narrative and a little bit about Mary and probably what was maybe going through her emotional range of you know, life and experience. Um, she, had, she had loved Jesus, a little bit of context. She had gone through some tremendous hardships throughout her life and uh, all the types of you know, uh, alienation that, that somebody would experience. Jesus humanizes her 
That's what I want you to catch. Jesus is maybe the first dude that ever comes into her life and shows her a degree or a moniker of, of, of love and kindness or a modicum of, of care and respect and respectability and humanization. And what, what she experiences from Jesus, like, changes her. She's a different person, different human being. And now she's deeply devoted to Jesus and all the stuff that Jesus is up to. And all the way up to the point of the cross, we're still even at that moment, probably even prior to that, not even really sure what's going to happen. But she watches the one who has rescued her, saved her, uh, humanized her, um, get brutally executed. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, like blood. Some, some, of, some of you guys I know here are, are doctors. You work in, you know... You know, places where, where blood happens. And I, I personally don't, I don't really like blood. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you a quick little story. A few weeks ago, I don't even know how this happened. I, it, something popped up on my Instagram, and it was like, uh, it's called Nature's Brutal or something like that, the brutality of nature, whatever it was. So it's, it's just nothing but all this stuff about how, how brutal nature is, like animals getting slaughtered by other animals. And it's, just, it's like a train wreck. I don't know. It's like maybe there's something really wrong with me, but I'm like, I watch it. I'm like, I can't watch that again. And I watch it again. I'm like, this is bad. This is, oh my gosh, I feel filthy. I feel like I need to just take a bath. I feel gross because I just watched blood. I don't like this and I feel queasy afterwards. But there's something about blood that I think we, we most of us are shocked by. But what happens if that blood comes from somebody that you are deeply committed to and you love? And they're not just in a car accident. But another human being did that to them. I just want you to imagine the trauma that Mary was suffering. That she was experiencing. That moment. She's still processing. This is literally three days later. She's still trying to make sense of watching the one whom she loved undergo something so bestial destructive, horrific, and she's dealing with the trauma of this in this moment. She goes to the tomb to show her gratitude and just respect in that moment, and the body's gone. Have you ever had compound trauma? Where something's going really wrong in your life, something really bad, horrific, you're dealing with something that you're still trying to make sense of and still trying to process. Um, and, And again, I want to be really clear. I'm not talking about denial. I'm not talking about optimism. I'm not talking about escapism. I'm not even talking about wishful thinking, nor am I talking about grief avoidance, because for many of us, there, there is a season for healthy processing of pain. A lot of times Christians don't do that really well. We just kind of ignore, like, it's all good. Life's awesome. Jesus is great. And we don't really deal with the stuff that we're going through. We don't, we, we, we're almost like afraid to call evil, evil, or pain, pain, or sin, sin, or something really bad, bad. But the fact of the matter is, is that she's dealing with all of this. It's like a compounded trauma that she's facing. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. This destruction, decay, and despair, and death that we have seen play into the story has ultimately been put on notice. It has an expiration date, a shelf life. That's what we see take place here. So hope comes after despair. First Peter chapter five verse ten says, "This God in His grace called you in His in the glory of Jesus. He Himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast after the season of suffering." This is the image that that Peter recognized that because Jesus conquered the grave, He overcame it, and He resurrected from the dead. That means that any form of despair that just has descended upon our soul, yes, there may be seasons and episodes and moments in life where it's there, but it does not ultimately in the final status define us because something greater has come in. And this is what we would describe as the word hope. G.K. Chesterton says this, and this is one of the most phenomenal quotes you'll hear today. (laughs) He says, fairy tales do not tell children 
that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. That's so phenomenal. Like, this is what the gospel tells us. That, yes, sin's there, but sin does not have to have the final day or the final say. Jesus offers hope in exchange for despair. So what we see that because of the resurrection, hope is one of the most rational things that one could have. Sometimes people in our culture are like, oh, it's so irrational to trust, to have hope in Jesus. No, actually, it's the most rational thing to have. It's rooted in not only a historical moment, but that historical moment transformed and changed many people who saw the reality take place. And that ripples down throughout the ages into the world in which we live in today. The last thing is we see that resurrection comes after death. Frederick Beekner would say this, the worst thing isn't the last. He would go on to say, it's the power from on high that comes down into the world that wells up from the rock bottom worst and of the world like a hidden spring. The image that he's painting there is that imagine something that's so dark and broken and messed up, this, this gulf, this valley that's so deep and so full of despair. It's in the midst of that that God comes down into that, to the very, very rock bottom of where death has done its worst. And it's from that, it's like a hidden spring that just wells up. This is what the resurrection is all about. Again, if I can put it this way, the Eden Project is back on. God is on the move. That's what Easter's all about. That's what Resurrection Sunday commemorates. It's a new archetype. It's a new way in which God says, here's how humanity can now begin to move forward. So what does this all mean? If I can put it succinctly, I would describe it this way. The original Eden Project, I would say, involves uh, kind of this, this, this three-pronged element of loving God, loving neighbor, but then also doing good picking up the assignments that God gives us that like Dan had referred to, and then being a part of this project of doing good in the lives of other people. That This is all part of what that Eden Project is all about. Uh, again, there in the world in which we live in today, there's a tendency to kind of view all three of these things as sort of uh, diametrically opposed. And so the fact is, on the one hand, we have sort of this human potential movement that would say, you can do anything and everything that you want, and just you've got to tap into your self-actuated reality and then live according to that as best and as uh, energized as you can. But the problem is, is that there's a tendency to think if I'm going to do that, I may end up having to step on other people along the way to accomplish my, my number one goals. In other words, there's this idea that you cannot love God, love your neighbor, and live to the full potential of human goodness that God calls us into, uh, all three synonymous, harmonious ways of doing it. And what I'm suggesting is that the Eden Project says, no, no, no you can't. You can love God by the power of his grace. You can love your neighbor. They don't have to be mistreated or you don't have to enter in these cycles of violence that oftentimes are just part and parcel of the culture at large in which we live in. And you can actually live into becoming a good human being that, that lives according to the power of the Holy Spirit to do good in this world. This is what I mean. <clears throat> by God's strength, for his glory, for his goodness, and for the benefit of other people. That all of these things are not mutually exclusive. And that's what God invites us into. So how do we take part in this? And this is the, the reality that we all are invited to take part. That guilt and shame no longer need to define you as we've been utterly, completely accepted by this God who loves us. 
not by our own merit, not by producing viral TikTok videos, not by any other means or way that we oftentimes think or envision. We have to lay a hold of this. We have to enter into this. We have to grasp onto this. We have to educate ourselves in this in order for us to be brought to this level where we are then seen visible to others and then fully accepted. But the gospel says, no, you're, you're, we're all part of this human project that has derailed. All of us, we've gone off course. All of us have been not just victims of brokenness, but we played into the brokenness itself. We've broken others as well as being broken by others. All of us are part of this mess. And God says, I've come to rescue anyone who trusts me. Here's how Peter would describe this. In Acts chapter 10, I'll finish with this thought. Peter goes into the house of a uh, a man. He's a uh, Roman guard. He has a very significant responsibility within the Roman army. So imagine him as being like a brutal, you know, terrorizing soldier, right? Because that's kind of how ancient Roman soldiers were. That's, that's what this is guy uh, job description. So, but he has a heart that's open to hear from God. Peter shows up at his house, and he begins to talk to him a little bit about who Jesus is. Now listen to how Peter interacts with him, and I'm going to finish with this thought. He goes on to say, you yourselves know, as he's speaking to his household, how that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So he's kind of like referring to the fact, like, you, you know, you've heard, you've heard of this guy Jesus, and you've heard uh, the reputation that he had. And he goes on to say that he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And he says, we are witnesses of all that he did. But they put him to death by hanging him on the tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear. And he commanded us to announce to the people that he is the one that's appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Then he goes on to finish up with this concluding statement. And everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins by his name. And this is Peter's like announcement to a Roman guard who would have been part of the war machine. That's, that's what I want you to think of. He was part of the war machine. He got paid by the war machine. He was part of the problem, the corporate problem. But he's being invited into a different way of being human. And this is what I want for us to pause and reflect upon and think about. Because who's Jesus? Peter says, like, here's who Jesus was. You, you guys all know his reputation. He went about doing good. Was he an evildoer? No. He went about doing good. Did he oppress people? No, he actually went around helping people who were oppressed by the devil. Think about our world in which we live in. Think about maybe even your life. What are those things that you would look at and say, I feel consistently under the oppression of some darkness, some inexplicable scenario that you just find yourself keep going back into? Could be addictions, could be depression, it could be just darkness, it could be guilt, shame, cycles that you find yourself going through, whatever they are. I mean, those are the very things that Jesus descends into our darkness and allows those things to take him on to conquer him to the point of death in the grave. But the story of that first day in that garden, which, by the way, Mary is in that garden, sees him, thinks Jesus is the gardener, which N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says she actually wasn't wrong. Jesus was a gardener. He was a gardener of a brand new type, a brand new archetype, bringing forth a brand new garden 
from, not from the original garden in Genesis chapter 1, but a new garden, a garden tomb, in which from that garden would come forth newness of life. And this is what we are invited to believe. The flip side of this is we all believe something. There's an alternate narrative or story that we're trying desperately to hold on to. The question is, how long-term and sustainable is that? Is it something that can cover you and wash you and cleanse you? Is it something that will always receive and accept you, no matter how broken, how messed up you are? Is it something that will change you and transform you in good, productive ways in which you become more at rest within yourself, more producer and creator of good, and more in harmony with other people around you, and more in alignment with God? This is the Eden Project that God invites us into. And how do we do that? Peter summarizes by saying, by receiving the forgiveness, by trusting him. And what we would describe, and I'm going to wrap it up with this thought. Um, I'm going to have the worship team come on up and we'll close on this thought. But the invitation is to what Peter would say elsewhere, is to repent and believe. The, the, those two words, repent, means to turn. It just simply means, again, sometimes I think that word repentance could be weaponized and it comes across in a negative way. But really, just the word repent means just like change your mind. Think differently. We're always doing that, aren't we? Like you, you can go through, you know, your, your social media feed and you read a news article and then you read something else. You're like, oh, you just change your mind right there. Now you think about something differently in a different light. This is what the believing the gospel is, repenting, turning from whatever alternate narratives that we have been thinking about with regard to who God is, misperceptions that we have held on to, in which we have oriented our lives around with regard to God, repentance means to say, I will receive the testimony of those that were there, who saw it, who experienced it, who watched it, who were trans- transformed by it. I will receive that testimony. And then, he says, believe, to let that reshape, to terraform our lives so that we enter into a, a whole new world in which God is one whom we seek to honor and we seek to love other people, no matter how broken, how messed up they are. Again, it's hard. Get it? Realize? That's, that's the challenge of what it means to be a Christian because Christians don't always do this really well. They've noticed that as well. But again, we're all part of that, that whole process. But God gives us power by his strength to be able to live according to this. And this is what it means. So I want you to think about this. And how do we participate in this Eden Project? I just want you to think about this, to imagine this in your mind. Imagine a family, your workplace, relationships, husband and wife, classroom. I want you to think about those areas that you are deeply tethered to and connected to right now. Where are those areas of brokenness at? Maybe you got a boss that's just like a hothead. He's horrible. He mistreats people. Maybe you're that person. (laughs) Maybe you're that like hot-headed human being. Um, I don't know, you know, the shoe fits, wear it. But um, where are those areas of brokenness? that either we're absorbing and we're having to pay or we are creating and we're making others pay. But now I want you to imagine all of the spheres, all of those landscapes reshaped under the influence of Eden where God is central, love of neighbor plays a vital central part and you and I are shaped by the influence of the Holy Spirit to become people that enter into using our time, treasure, and talents towards good. That's the world, I think, that God envisioned Genesis 1, that derailed, that Jesus relaunched Resurrection Sunday, that you and I right now are invited into. So I don't know where you're at or how you're even thinking about this, but my invitation to you is to 
invite this, this God of life who gives life, who covers our sin, our shame, our guilt, who forgives us our offenses and makes us new people. So let's all stand as we wrap this up. And uh, if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything, maybe you're not a Christian and you're like leaning in a direction that says, I, I want to know more. We, I want to I pray with you. We have some leaders that are either off over the side right here. I'll be up side here as well. I'm happy to talk with you. They're happy to talk and pray with you. Or just anything that's going on in your life, you just need prayer for anything. Don't miss an opportunity to just let God meet you right where you're at. So I'm going to pray, and let's lift up our voice and sing. So Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for rising again from the dead. Thank you for being the one that has conquered darkness, despair, and death, and gave us new life. So we respond in love and worship to you right now.